Nope. 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 <laughs> Heck no. Nope. Uh-uh. No way. Seriously? This guy looks like he had a baby with a platypus and a bowling ball. Gosh. Not this guy. Nope. No. Oh, hold on now. He's kind of cute. I think I like him. He looks familiar, though. Where have I seen him before? Could it have been Charlie's? Near the ballpark? My gosh, America's most wanted. He's that guy who swindled all those women he found on a dating app. I'm so done with dating apps. I mean, it's not like I'm asking for anything crazy. It just has to be normal. I'm tall. Probably should be tall. I'm smart. I'm handsome. Funny. Rich doesn't hurt. <sighs> I want someone who's going to love me with a burning passion, who will stand by me through the good times and the bad, who will fight for me. He'll be my King Arthur, and I'll be his Queen Guinevere. Well, maybe not Arthur and Guinevere. That didn't turn out too great. <sighs> I mean, I liked that Arthur was so passionate about Guinevere. I mean, he only had eyes for her. But Guinevere also had Lancelot, and he was hot <laughs> and exciting. <laughs> I mean, Arthur had to go and ruin everything and get jealous. He was being so close-minded and selfish. Who is he to say that Guinevere should be his exclusively? I mean, I don't blame her. Humans don't mate for life or not geese. I mean, she had a good thing going with Arthur. Who's to say she couldn't have a good thing going with Lancelot as well? I mean, just look at people today. We got Brad and Angelina. They had an open marriage, and it was going great for them until they got divorced. And then Bruce Willis and Demi Moore, they had an open marriage until they got divorced. And Demi Moore, she had another open marriage and then got divorced. What? That doesn't add up. I mean... It, it should work, right? Everyone gets what they want. Everyone should be happy. But they're not. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe Arthur had it right. Maybe the tragedy wasn't that he was jealous for Guinevere. The tragedy was that Guinevere wasn't jealous for him. I don't know. Nope. Not him. Oh, come on, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> Love it. My wife, looking at other guys on Tinder. <laughs> I don't know, Pastor Scott's not here, so I don't have like a, like a therapist or something. Like, I don't know. How do I handle this? No. <laughs> Good morning, Belal. I hope you guys are doing well. Ah, oh, man. This morning I have the honor of, of talking to you about a name of God that I was actually only introduced to maybe in December? Maybe November. November or December. So it's only been a couple months 
still kind of a new name to me. And uh, that being said, I can already tell it's my favorite name I've ever heard. And so on the, the sign back here up in the top left, you see it says, Jealous God. I'm a big fan of the original Hebrew. It sounds so, I don't know, intense. El Kana. El Kana. As a matter of fact, New Members, the book that you guys have been getting with the 100 names, uh, if you go to the literal second name, it's Elkanah, which uh, was not intentional. It was kind of crazy, actually. I had just heard about this name, and then in December, Scott was planning his sermon series, and he was like, ah, we're going to do the names of God, and I'm thinking, I have the perfect name, and I'm not going to tell Scott what it is because I want to preach on it. <laughs> and uh, that I did end up uh, telling him ahead of time, and then, and then he threatened to preach on it anyway, but he's not here, and I am. <laughs> Elkanah. And the, the, one of the things that got me really interested in this name of God is because I heard a story, which is true, feel free to Google it after service, about uh, someone that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, it depends. Some, some people have heard of her, some haven't. Uh, her name's Oprah Winfrey. And, uh, you know, she, 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 she tries really hard. Like, one of these days, she's really going to make it, I think. Um, but no, she's, she's, she's a billionaire media tycoon. She has the highest rated, highest rated talk show of all time, ever. Still today, it's, it's the Oprah Winfrey show topped the charts and, and it's, it broke records. It's, it's never been beat. Okay. Oprah Winfrey, you may not know, grew up in the church, uh, attended services multiple times throughout the week like many of us probably did. She was involved in her church. She went to Bible study. She went to youth group. She was plugged in. She graduates high school. She kind of gets away from her family and moves up to Boston. And guess what? She continues attending church into her 20s. Until she goes to church one Sunday and she hears a sermon on Deuteronomy 4. Jealous God. And I'm going to read to you what she said and what pulled her away from the Christian faith in that sermon. Because what we're talking about today is really, really important. And it's really important to get right. Because when you don't, well, things happen. I take what I do up here very seriously. Souls hanging in the balance isn't just a nice catchphrase to make it feel like being a pastor is really dramatic and exciting. The decisions that you make and the words that you use and the things that you say from this stage, I believe I'm going to be judged for when I get to heaven. God's going to hold every single word that I have ever preached up to his word. So I want to take it seriously. So she says this. I remember sitting in a church and the minister was preaching about the Lord God is a jealous God. That the Lord thy God would condemn us. And I remember I had a spiritual aha. There I was in my late 20s and I suddenly thought, how could this God who is all loving and all powerful be jealous of me? How could that be? It just didn't work for me. Something happened in that moment. Prior to that, I was just sort of by rote doing what I was trained to do in the church. And that is when my spiritual path began with her leaving the church. 
she rejected Christianity. She accepted a postmodern humanistic spirituality that you don't have to, you know, go to church. You don't really need Jesus. You just got to do what feels good for you, man. And as long as you do that, I mean, things should be great. Things are going to go real well for you. And it's hard to argue that with Oprah, wouldn't it? Because things have gone pretty well for her. She's been extremely successful. So how we handle this message, how we handle this concept is vitally important. I'm going to pose a question to you and I'm going to answer it later on. What does it mean that God is jealous? What does it mean that he's jealous? If you want to go to your notes to uh, our first point here, we're going to read this passage of scripture from Matthew 22. I I, uh, was talking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how it's uh, uh, interesting to him. Uh, John 3.16 and John 3.17, some of the most, uh, 3.16 is probably the most well-known scripture in the world, right? Uh, Anyone here ever played football at like in high school, collegiate level? Okay, when someone scores a touchdown and the camera pans in on the end zone, there's going to inevitably be someone in the end zone holding up a massive sign saying John 3.16. It happens at like every game, okay? John 3.16, people know this verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's great. John 3.17 tells us why. I love John 3.17. Not to, not to be heretical in front of you, but I kind of like it more than 3.16. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him it might be saved. And I had this revelation a few weeks ago when I was talking to my friend. If God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, why would he send me to condemn the world? That doesn't mean that I don't call out unrighteousness when I see it, but personally for me, that's more in the church than outside of it, because you guys have the book. You know your Savior and your Father, and he is jealous for you. So, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's why they were so sad, you see, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. I love this. They were testing Jesus. They did not know what they were getting into. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And and Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't just say the answer to their question. He gives them a little bit more. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself is just under loving God with the entirety of your being. It's one of the reasons that I know, and it's point number one, that we were created for relationship. Because the most important commandment is to wholly love God. That's a relationship. 
The second is like it, to wholly love your neighbor. That's a relationship. And so we were created for relationship. All of this is going to build into what it means that, that God is jealous for us. But we got, a, we got a journey we have to go on to get there. We were created for relationship. Who was the person that, uh, and you guys can shout this out, feel free, I don't care. Who was the person that only got to see a sliver of God's backside? Just a sliver of it in the Old Testament. Moses. It was Moses. Okay. When Moses saw it, what happened to him? Turned his hair like white. He aged like 40 years in a moment. Why? Because beholding the majesty of God, while he was still just a normal flesh and blood human, uh, was too much for him. That's why he only got to see a little tiny sliver of God as he kind of passed by. Because God told him, if I show you me, it will kill you. You can't. But you know what's really interesting? Moses is not the only one in the Old Testament who sought God. Adam and Eve in the garden walked with him. They weren't at risk of dying prior to the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve were in relationship with God in a way that did not happen again until Jesus came down. They were able to look at God, to talk to him, to walk with him. They heard his footsteps in the garden. They, they knew God, and God wants to know us. We were created for relationship. Point number two, we're going to jump into Luke this time. In Luke 22, and that conversation I was having with my friend had nothing to do with this sermon, but it just so happened he kept bringing up things that were in some way related to what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm sharing some of the, the insight that, that he had given me, even. He likes how this passage in Luke 22 is not referred to as the first communion, but instead the last supper. And the importance of fellowship, the importance of breaking bread, with people. And it's not just a tradition, it's not just a nice idea, but it's something that God modeled for us directly through Jesus. And in Luke 22, he said this, uh, when the hour came, he, meaning Christ, reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new what? covenant in my blood is the new covenant in my blood. So we, point number one, um, we were uh, created to be in relationship. Point number two, our relationship with God is a covenant. It's not a new idea. That's why he said new covenant, not first covenant. There had already been a covenant in Exodus. Moses was, was given it atop the mountain. He comes down in Exodus like 20 through 24. But then you get to Exodus like 32 and the Israelites do a bunch of bad stuff. And so the covenant comes back out again in Exodus 34. 
And we're going to read a touch on that a little bit later. But here's what I want you to get in this moment. Until Christ came and in the Last Supper broke bread with the disciples, the only covenant we had ever had was, was from God through a proxy. Someone had to climb the mountain in order to converse with God. Get the covenant and bring it down. Even the one that we had from Abraham was God to Abraham and through Abraham to the, to the, to the Hebrews, right? Which we've been grafted into as, as co-heirs. Then Jesus shows up. And for the first time since all of creation, God enters into a covenant himself with no in-between. You, you join into that covenant not by having a conversation with Pastor Scott. You join into that covenant by giving your life over to Christ. There's no longer an intermediary between you and God. It is an intimate, personal relationship that we have. Much like a, a bride and a groom. And you're going to see that imagery coming up here in a little bit. So we were created for a relationship. Our relationship with God is a covenant. And point number three, we're going to read a passage in Deuteronomy 4. The very same passage whose theology was shredded and wrecked the spiritual journey of Oprah herself. So be careful yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. And make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything against which the Lord God has commanded you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, for Yahweh is a consuming fire, a jealous God. For the Lord your God is Elkanah. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall not worship any other God. Remember, this is the reissuing of the covenant. Because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Because the Lord, whose name is Elkanah, is Elkanah. He is jealous. So our covenant, point number three, is with a consuming fire. Now, I got to talk to you about what excites me the most about all of this. Why does this excite me? Well, because I started with a question, what does it mean that God is jealous? Because when I think of jealousy, like Sandra mentioned, it's kind of a negative. It's a bad thing. For God to be jealous, I mean, goodness, how can he be jealous? See, when I'm jealous, it's ugly, right? When I'm jealous, it's not righteous. I've talked about this before. One of my favorite uh, verses in, in Scripture is in one of the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians where he said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. We always stop right there. That's actually in the middle of the verse. We don't even have to go to the next verse to keep going. It's like there's a semicolon, and we see that, and we're like, that's enough for me. Semicolons are scary. But right on the other side of that semicolon, it says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I had a big anger problem growing up, high school, college, a few years after college. And one day I read that passage, for the anger of God does not achieve the righteousness of man. And I realized I'm not good at what we like to call righteous indignation. None of us are good at it. That's why we're supposed to be slow to anger. 
because we kind of suck at it. In the same way, is it possible, just like there is a righteous anger that God can have, that there is a righteous jealousy that God can have that I have a hard time tapping into? Like most of the emotions that we experience and that we convey, are they just a shadow of what they were created to be as we were made in the image of God? And so <clears throat> I uh, was, was confronted with this idea of God being jealous. And, and like I said, what does it mean that, that he is jealous? And <clears throat> I'm going to uh, get into the English language a little bit here because it's going to help. In Zechariah, we don't have a slide for it. Um, you can write this down, though, if you want. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. What does that mean? There's a word here, which could also be translated as this idea of burning with jealousy. Uh, an another uh, phrase, sort of phraseology that you could use uh, is, uh, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. For like the six people who understand that reference. Ardent. A deep love. It actually references the idea of your face kind of turning red a little bit, what we call blushing, when you're overcome with an intense emotion. Now, sometimes people get red in the face when they're angry. Sometimes they're red in the face when they're just really stressed. Uh, sometimes they get red in the face when they're really excited, when they're really happy, when things are going really well. W when I see uh, my wife, I blush because she's adorable. I love her. She's my favorite person. She's my favorite person. And so when I'm around her, I have these, these deep feelings of love for her, which I should, because there's only one other covenant that I'm a part of, other than the one that I am in with God. Marriage. Marriage is a covenant. What does that mean? It means it is deeper than any other relationship you're going to have other than the one that you have with God, right? Exodus 34, 14. Again, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. When we uh, set out to do this sermon series, Scott, uh, Pastor Scott found a list of over 900 names of God that are in Scripture. Here's the interesting thing. Almost all of those were given by someone else talking about God. Very, very rarely do we ever see God himself say, this is my name. Very rarely, a small percentage of those 900 are God himself talking. And God says that in Exodus 34. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Elkanah is a jealous God. So he told us his name. So it's very serious, right? So the Hebrews are telling us that the Lord is Elkanah, and so isn't jealousy bad? What, what could it look like for jealousy to be good? What could it look like for jealousy to be good? So you see, the, the, the jealousy that God's called us to stay away from is the jealousy, and I, I'm going to borrow this next phrase from a, <clears throat> a lesson that I, I recently was, was watching uh, called The Truth Project uh, with Del Tackett. And there's a line that he uses in there that really uh, spoke to me. Uh, the jealousy that God is telling us to steer away from is the jealousy that says, I want what you have, 
and I hate you for having it. That's the jealousy we think of, right? That's the envy. So, so what kind of jealousy could God have? I said I was going to talk about English for a moment. The word for versus the word of. God is not jealous of you. He's not envious. He's jealous for you. He wants you. How does that play out? Well, let me ask you this. Uh, David, you're, you're sitting next to someone who's very important to you. Your wife, right? <clears throat> if something was going to threaten that relationship, wouldn't it be appropriate for you to, to stand up in defense of that relationship? Even if it was your own sin. Even if it was Michelle's sin. Even if it was the sin of, of someone completely separate. That would be the right thing to do, to stand up in defense of that relationship. Here's, here's something that, that I want you guys to hear right now. God's jealousy is not directed wrath and anger towards you at all, ever. Why? Because his wrath has been satisfied on the cross. He is not wrathful and vengeful towards you. Even when you sin and it threatens your relationship with God, Elkanah rises up against you, no, with you, against that which threatens your relationship. God is jealous for you. Even when I screw up, he says, John, that's threatening our relationship. I'm here to help. Not John, dummy. No, no, John, I am here. I am with you. I am standing here with you against that which threatens our relationship. And so that is what it means for God to be jealous. That is what it means for him to be Elkanah. It's not that he is uh, in some way insecure. It's, it's not that, that he's the, the, the guy who, you know, uh, we're, we're cheating on him in, in idolatry of, in some fashion. He's, he's kicking down the door and, you know, throwing us out a window and kicking us to the curb. And No, 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 no. There's no insecurity at all. It's just protecting the relationship. Divine protection uh, of that which he loves most, which is you and me. Tim Keller once said that uh, idolatry is just taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. Right? So, so cheating on God isn't just worshiping another God. It can be taking anything that we enjoy. Like Sandra uh, so uh, eloquently illustrated during the kids' message. Anything, even good things can become bad things if they become the ultimate thing. Recently, when I was uh, actually teaching the, the new member class, afterwards, I had someone come up to me. I'm not sure if she's here or not. Um, but she asked me, why do I cry so much when I preach? And I was like, that's a fair question, because I feel like I do it almost every time I preach. And... Uh, I wasn't expecting the question, so at first I was like, I don't really know how to answer that. 
Um, but it was, it was more of like she was, uh, there was care and concern in her voice. She wanted to make sure I was okay. And I really appreciated that. And I was like, yeah, thank you. It's like most people wouldn't even ask that question. They would just assume either something good or something bad and then go about their day. But she took a moment and she asked. And uh, I used to lack empathy, like to a fault. I didn't really care about people. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to live in a cabin in the woods in Montana. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 Uber didn't exist, but I dreamed that maybe I wouldn't even have to go to the store one day. The idea was just to be separate from society, separate from all the people that annoyed the crap out of me. <clears throat> I'm now a pastor, so <laughs> obviously God's done some kind of a work in me, but I just didn't have any empathy at all. You're going through a hard time, I mean... That sucks. Cool. Yeah, suck it up. You know, I've been through a lot of hard times, and, and I barely made it out, but I made it out, so, you know, get, get, to, get to working. But a few years ago, actually, when I went through that hard time, I was a pastor for a couple years without much empathy. That's not healthy, by the way. But it was in 2016, 2017. And I talked about this before, when I went through a suicidal time, when I was just horribly depressed for an extended period, and I just felt like I had been abandoned by literally everyone except for my wife. On the other side of that experience, I realized that God had given me empathy. I was actually able to not just walk into a room and understand how people are feeling, but in some ways to feel it too, because I had usually been there in some capacity. And my heart was changed and I just was overcome with love for people in a way that I had never really experienced before. And so when I'm up here and I'm preaching and I, and I start crying, it's, it's usually twofold. On the one hand, I'm reminded of all the things that God has delivered me from and all the ways that he has saved me, the things that he has gotten me through, and I'm overcome with gratitude. And I'm not afraid to cry because Jesus cried. On the other hand, I look out at a room full of people who are going through things. Some of them I know, some of them I don't. But I now have this empathy and I hurt. And that's okay. But I want you to hear this. One of the coolest things I ever learned about God, his jealousy for me. It's not wrath. It's fierce protection and love. There's some people here who are carrying around some really deep wounds. I carried around some really deep wounds for a long time. There's a book I read that referred to them as soul wounds. These scars, this idea that uh, if anyone's ever had like a, a major like bodily injury that left a, a, a deep scar you might recognize that that scar is really tender for a really long time, sometimes for the rest of your life. What's really interesting about scar tissue is that you don't even have to touch the scar for it to hurt. You can just touch an area around it, and it, it'll ache. 
And there's some folks in here who, like me, have those on their soul, who have these wounds. And sometimes you get angry and sometimes you lash out and you don't know why. And sometimes the depression comes in, sometimes the, the fear comes in, sometimes the anxiety comes in, and everything's going okay and you don't know why. What you're never going to hear me say is, well, you did something wrong and God's punishing you. That's, well, what I want to say I can't say in church, but it's wrong. It's stupid. God is, is not up here trying to punish you guys. No, his, his jealousy is not saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that. His jealousy is saying, you know what, you did it. But I'm here and we are together going to make this right. The greatest act of jealousy ever committed was the act committed on that cross. God was so zealous in his love for you amidst all of your failures and mistakes, and my own as well, that he sent his son who willingly died on that cross because he didn't want anything to get in between him and you, each and every one of you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that, that God so desperately desires to be in unity with you that one day you can walk shoulder to shoulder with him like Adam and Eve did in the garden, not in fear for your life like Moses was, but being able to be in perfect relationship with God, that he sent his son to die for you because he doesn't condemn you, because he wants to save you from everything that threatens your relationship with him. He is Elkanah. And so that is what should rise up in us. If something were to ever threaten my relationship with Hannah, Elkanah should rise up in defense of my marriage, not in an attack on Hannah or an attack on myself. Similarly, God, Elkanah, rises up. When we sin, when someone else sins against us, it doesn't matter. He always rises up with us. I'm going to close with this. Bruce, if you would come up. There's a, uh, a passage I love. I wasn't expecting to bring it up, so we don't have a slide, and I also do not remember the exact reference in Scripture. I apologize, but it's popular enough. Most of you probably have heard it. It's in the Old Testament. And uh, when I was in college is when I discovered this, this interesting discrepancy, if you will. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner against him probably a verse you've heard. In the, the translation of, of the Bible that I grew up with in the NIV, um, there was always a comma after flood. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner or standard against him. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Didn't really take that into consideration. I just assumed when the enemy comes at us, when they are onslaughting us, God will stand up and he will defend us. That's a good verse. It's a good verse. I got into college, uh, fell in love with the New American Standard Bible. I joke that it's, it's my heart language. And uh, they put the comma after in. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And so I started to look it up. And that's, it was when I was in college that I learned that uh, ancient Hebrew doesn't have uh, punctuation. 
And so we have to, at some point during the translation process, make a very educated, I worked at Wycliffe Bible Translators for seven years, they take what they do very seriously, but we have to make very educated guesses on some of these things based on uh, subject pronouns and conjugation of verbs and, and really trying to figure out what applies where, okay? But theologically, nowhere in scripture, aside from that verse supposedly, would water ever be equated with Satan or any of his minions. It's actually only ever equated with God. All the way from the very beginning of the creation story, the spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. Ever since, all over, baptism is like a water thing, if you didn't know. And so I read that and I saw that comma there. And what's interesting is, is most translations now that have been updated, that comma's actually moved. And so I feel very vindicated because all through college, I felt like I was championing the re-placement like, of the comma in this verse because to me, it doesn't make any sense. Why is this the only verse where water is equated with the enemy? Why does it say when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner against him when I believe what it says is when the enemy comes in, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a banner. It doesn't matter how hard or how soft the enemy comes at you. It doesn't matter how big or how small the mountain that you're facing. It, it doesn't matter. And I'm saying this because I want you to understand, it doesn't matter how little you think your problem is. God is not looking at it like it's a little tiny problem. His response is full and overwhelming and oppressive to the enemy. No matter what you are facing, he comes in like a rushing flood. No matter what you are facing, he will rise up against the enemy. He's not giving you second best. He's not giving you leftovers. He's not giving you a little bit because your storm's kind of small. You get all of God all the time. Everything from him. He will always rise up. He will always defend you with everything that he has. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we are reminded that you are Elkanah, that you are jealous for us, and Lord, that you defend us, that you are here, that you've never left, you never will leave. I pray for everyone here, everyone watching online, Lord, that you would renew in us our love for you this morning. And as things come against us and as, as even our own sins and mistakes threaten our relationship with you, help us not to feel condemned, but help us to feel saved because you are Elkanah and because you did not come to condemn us, but you came to save us. And you're here to protect us, to stand between us and the enemy. Give us hope. Deliver us from anxiety and fear and shame. Embolden us to go into our world to love well, to share the truth that you are jealous of us, for us, because you love us so much.
We thank you, Lord. You are good. You are so, so good. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you rise for the benediction this morning? Pretty soon you guys are going to have this one memorized. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his very throne with exceeding abundant joy to the only wise God our Savior be power and dominion, glory and majesty forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.